You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Mark Blueball, co-chair of the Transportation and Logistics Practice Group for Benish Law. Shippers, 3PLs, and carriers have a lot to think about just conducting their day-to-day businesses. But one important aspect that they all should be considering more carefully is the fine print in any contracts or agreements that they put their name to. Mark Blueball, co-chair of the Transportation and Logistics Practice Group for the Benish Law Firm, joins us to explain how even the most minor oversight can lead to a most major expense. My guest this morning is Mark Blueball, co-chair of Transportation and Logistics Practice Group for the Benish Law Firm. Mark, thank you for joining the Inbound Logistics Podcast this morning. Delighted to be here. Thanks for extending the invitation. It's good to have you. Uh, Before we get started, what is your background? Uh, How did you get involved in transportation and logistics? Sure, sure. Initially, it was by happenstance. About 20 years ago, I got involved in a case involving an international shipment of shoes from Brazil to the United States. Uh, the container was open here in the U.S., and the, and the container was empty. The shoes were missing, and it was a few hundred grand worth of shoes, so there was enough to fight about. And I was representing an international ocean freight forwarder in the case, uh, and all of the parties who had ever touched the box ended up getting sued. So there was a Brazilian warehouse operator, the steamship line, the railroad, the dray company, uh, and my client, the ocean freight forwarder, uh, were all sued by the shipper. And it was, to me, uh, just a great introduction to the world of transportation and logistics, particularly uh, intermodal uh, transportation, because we had a a variety of uh, unique laws and international treaties that came into play. It was an area of the law that not many lawyers, frankly, know a lot about. So to me, it was kind of an inspiration, and I thought, wow, this is an area I would like to learn more about uh, and to begin building a practice group at our firm to support. How prevalent is this kind of thing? Because... Does it go back to the Wild West days where <laughs> train robberies were were going on? Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? <laughs> All manner of uh, of issues. You know, in our practice group, we end up handling a wide variety uh, of legal issues that face our clients. We represent both the the providers of transportation and logistic services, uh, as well as the commercial users of those services. So it could be on the provider side, trucking companies, freight forwarders, freight brokers, steamship lines, railroads, uh, warehouse operators, and the like. On the uh, on the shipper side, we're representing large manufacturers, retailers, distributors, and it can be a wide variety of issues that they face. It may be cargo theft. It may be cargo uh, damage. Uh, we handle a lot of drafting and negotiation of transportation contracts uh, so that the parties can memorialize the relationships. We work on development of policies and protocols for our clients, provide uh, regulatory analyses, audits, uh, and a variety of uh, miscellaneous research projects. But in the in the business dispute arena, it tends to be cargo claims for loss, damage, or delay, freight charge disputes, trade secret controversies, uh, uh, the lawsuits over insurance coverage, indemnity, and the like. Uh, so it's it's interesting how much of a variety of legal disputes may arise in this industry. <laughs> you, you certainly cover a lot. Now, our, our publisher, Inbound Logistics Magazine publisher, Keith Biondo, got to hear you speak at NASTRAC, where you touched on the idea of companies needing to be aware of some hidden liabilities, which would be less than ideal for their businesses. What are a few of the areas where you've seen shippers unwittingly leave themselves open to some unnecessary and ultimately costly exposure? Sure, sure. There's a couple of of key areas that shippers should be keeping in mind. I think one 
is an overall failure sometimes to understand that certain federal laws or treaties or conventions come into play. Uh, for instance, to give you an example, there was a, a fairly famous case before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, a number of years ago called Kirby. Uh, it was actually a Norfolk Southern case versus Kirby, uh, and this involved an international shipment of machinery that was coming uh, to the U.S., and essentially, this shipper, Kirby, had hired an ocean transportation intermediary called ICC to arrange for this transportation of 10 containers full of machinery from Australia to Alabama. Uh, that ocean transportation intermediary issued a through bill of lading to the shipper, uh, and that through bill of lading contained a clause paramount, which, which incorporates a federal law called the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act. Uh, which itself uh, permits a $500 per package limitation of liability uh, for damage that occurs during ocean transportation. Uh, and it also contained a Himalaya clause, which extends that limitation of liability to all inland transportation, essentially. It's you know, kind of a, a shorthand version of it. So what happened here was that uh, that ocean transportation intermediary hired uh, the downstream providers, uh, including Norfolk Southern, which handled the, the rail leg of this transportation. And there was a derailment uh, once it got to the U.S. between Savannah and Huntsville, Alabama, where it was ultimately supposed to uh, be delivered. So the shipper here uh, makes a claim with its own insurer, of course, uh, but then they also pursued Norfolk Southern uh, in federal court here in the U.S. And Norfolk Southern is able ultimately to rely on a limitation of liability contained in uh, both the ICC Bill of Lading as well as, uh, as well as another one that was issued by Hamburg Sud, the, uh, the ocean carrier here, and limit the shipper's recovery to $500 per container. Even though the, the freight was worth $1.5 million, Ultimately, the shipper was only able to recover $5,000, 500 bucks per container. So it's a reminder to shippers that these international uh, treaties, uh, federal laws, conventions can really have a significant implication. They have to understand what these references to something like the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act mean in their contracts. That's one area where I see uh, some significant issues for shippers. Um, Another area that comes to mind typically when I'm talking about this is the failure of certain shippers to review or maybe understand uh, tariffs, terms and conditions, service guidelines, or even just general industry terms that are appearing in their contracts, maybe paperwork that they are issuing, in fact. There was a case oh, a couple of years ago called Siren versus Estes Express, and it was a situation where the, the commercial shipper here was tendering a load of razor blades uh, to Estes Express, uh, the carrier. It was, it was an interstate move here in the U.S. Uh, and there was no master shipper carrier agreement in place. But Siren, the shipper, prepares a very basic uh, bill of lading and writes on that bill of lading, Class 85, just has that phrase, Class 85. Estes ultimately loses the shipment in transit. It was worth about 50 grand. 
Uh, and Estes uh, says, well, you know, we're not going to offer $50,000 to you, shipper. We're going to offer you $8,000 because this load weighed 700 pounds, and pursuant to Estes' tariff, uh, there was an $11.80 per pound limitation of liability for Class 85 freight. And the trial court initially kind of tossed out that argument and said, no, no, the shipper here is entitled to full recovery. There was no express incorporation of your tariff, Estes, in this very simple bill of lading. But the Court of Appeals reversed and said, no, you know, the, the carrier here is right. And shipper, you can only recover a little over $8,000 because you, shipper, were the party who prepared the bill of lading. You wrote Class 85 on it. By doing that, you incorporated some very uh, industry-specific terminology uh, that included a limitation of liability. And hmm. yeah, we're sorry that you didn't understand or you didn't have actual knowledge of what you were doing, but uh, this court in particular said, look, we don't deem it necessary to protect sh shippers from themselves. So shippers, the takeaway there is, I mean, they have to be careful about the language that they're using in their in their agreements, even if they think it's a very simple, straightforward agreement, so that they uh, they can take that into account and avoid uh, a result that they were not expecting. Kind of a third area that I think about where shippers create uh, exposure sometimes for themselves, or they don't they don't realize uh, the consequences of the agreements they're entering into, uh, relates to the role of the providers with whom they're contracting. Sometimes they simply don't understand if they're contracting with an actual carrier, if they're contracting with an ocean freight forwarder, an intermediary of some sort, or if they are you know, dealing with uh, some other non-asset-based provider. So uh, an example where this has come up in the past, for instance, is a, a few years ago, a case involving Panalpina. Uh, and the shipper here was Westinghouse, and they had contracted with Panalpina, which is, is, a, is an ocean freight forwarder, to oversee the transportation of a, an electrical transformer, a big, heavy electrical transformer coming uh, from Italy to the U.S., I think to Iowa. And the terms and conditions were listed on a, a, a short bill of lading type contract, and Panalpina said, look, we're going to exercise reasonable care in the selection of other people we're going to get involved in this transportation, and Panalpina had also represented that it was going to give the load, quote, door-to-door -door or close care and supervision, or words to that effect. Uh, and during the ocean voyage, this transformer ended up breaking loose from its lashing. There, was some, there were some heavy seas. It broke loose. It smashed a laser-cutting machine that was also on the deck, uh, and it was owned by a different party called Prima. Uh, Prima ends up suing uh, Westinghouse, the shipper, as well as other parties, uh, for this damage. And naturally, there's a lawsuit over all of this. And the trial court says, initially, Panalpina, you need to indemnify Westinghouse, your shipper, uh, for this claim. But then it's reversed on appeal. Ultimately, the court of appeal says, no, no, Panalpina doesn't need to. And it said, look, because the role that Panalpina was playing was so crucial, the ocean freight forwarder is simply a travel agent for freight. It simply facilitates the movement of cargo. And here, this statement that the shipment would receive door-to-door -door close care and supervision, the court said, was really just puffing. It didn't amount to a contractual commitment uh, that anyone could rely on uh, because uh, it was insufficient to overcome 
this well-settled legal distinction between an ocean freight forwarder uh, and an NVOCC or an actual steamship line. So another reminder to shippers, know who it is that you're dealing with, understand their role, because if you don't, you might be uh, out of luck ultimately uh, in, a, in a legal dispute down the road. So you know, those are three areas. The, the one more I'll mention to you, Jeff, uh, is kind of this area of, of joint venture or vicarious liability uh, that we've seen cropping up recently. Um, and shippers are getting bit by this uh, just as brokers and forwarders and the like are. Um, one case that comes to mind is a case called Hoffman that was in Illinois a couple of years ago. Uh, and this is a situation where a shipper uh, hires a 3PL, which was essentially a broker, to arrange for the transportation of certain steel coils. And the broker hires a motor carrier to transport the steel coils. Uh, the driver for the motor carrier uh, drops off the coils. He's on his return from, from destination. He ends up rear-ending a third party. Uh, and the, the, the injured party ends up becoming a paraplegic. There's this big two-week jury trial, uh, and ultimately a jury verdict is entered for over $27 million against not only the motor carrier and not, not only against the broker even, but also the shipper in this particular context. And the plaintiff's theory was that the shipper and the broker and the carrier were all engaged in a joint venture uh, and that the driver was essentially an agent of this joint venture. Uh, and as a re and the, the underlying theory was that these three corporate defendants, including the shipper, controlled the driver. They were all linked due to the manner in which the shipper uh, employed its outsourcing practices. Um, so the shipper ended up getting bitten because of that. Uh, and it's just another area that shippers need to be sensitive to. There was a similar case, somewhat similar case, on a different theory uh, before that called Puck Rain. Uh, and that, in that Puck Rain case, the shipper had contracted with a, a motor carrier to transport a, a load of glass residue of some sort. And, you know, the ultimate carrier that was performing the services uh, was using, uh, was uninsured, it had some safety problems, didn't have the proper authority, uh, and there was an accident. And, and the Puckrains, Mr. and Mrs. Puckrain, were, were killed in the accident. Uh, everybody else who was involved was uh, insolvent, so the shipper ended up becoming the target. Uh, and the court in that case said that the shipper could be liable for injuries arising from the incompetency of a motor carrier that it selected uh, because even if the shipper had initially evaluated the motor carrier and determined that it was properly licensed and authorized, it had a continuing duty of inquiry and that it needed to um, continue to monitor that. And if it had been doing so, it would have realized that the motor carrier in question had become you know, ultimately incompetent to, to transport the products uh, and therefore it, it faced significant shipper liability in that case. So just a few you know, takeaways there, I guess, for the, the commercial shippers who are listening, things to think about uh, when you're engaging in your relationships with, uh, with your providers. Is, is that helpful? Yeah, yeah very, very helpful. Now, uh, one question, though, that's so much information to have to kind of take into account for shippers. Where in the entire process of negotiating should shippers start thinking about all of those kinds of things, and, and what can they do to kind of take care of that ahead of time? 
Absolutely. Uh, number one, they need to have the conversation at the outset as to what role the provider is playing. Are they, in fact, going to be an asset-based provider or are they going to have – are they a non-asset-based provider that is going to be brokering or using third parties? That has to happen first and foremost before any other discussions can really take place. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's really a, a question of just making sure – that in fact you understand what is in a given contract. Too often I see parties just assume that they understand or they're, or they're frankly maybe they're too embarrassed to inquire about what does this phrase mean? Why is this sentence in a contract? Uh, there's no need to, to have that reluctance. You need to address these issues up front so that everybody can have a transparent relationship. I, I, I like the saying that you know, good contracts are kind of uh, like good fences. I mean, they, they make, just like good fences make good neighbors, good, good contracts make good business partners. It's a, it's a way to ensure that the parties are all operating with the same universe of information, expectations are aligned, uh, and ultimately it makes for a successful relationship. Yeah. Now, what about 3PLs who already have to navigate the sometimes choppy waters between distribution and fulfillment? What are some of the areas where they can be vulnerable? Sure, sure. Um, you know, and I'll start with a an observation not unlike what I mentioned with respect to shippers. I think the starting point always has to be making sure that that 3PL understands its role. What role is it going to play, uh, and and how is it being communicated to the public or to a given customer? For instance, um, there are many cases where uh, brokers, I'll use them as an example, are ultimately treated as motor carriers because they held themselves out in some fashion as being a motor carrier. It's the um, the duck test, I, I call it. You know, if it, if it swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it is a duck. It doesn't matter what you label yourself. It's how you're conducting yourself. So, for instance, there's this case, Brothers Trucking, from oh, about 12 years ago or so, where a where a shipper hires a 3PL to arrange for transportation of some high-value electronics interstate. Uh, that 3PL hires a broker uh, called Salem Logistics to arrange for the transportation of these goods. Salem ultimately selects a, a trucking company, this Brothers Trucking, uh, to, to move the actual freight. Uh, the carrier ends up parking the load at a shopping mall overnight, uh, and surprise, surprise, the shipment is ultimately stolen and that there's a lawsuit that's brought. But the one of the theories that the shipper used against the broker in this case was that the broker should be treated as a carrier because, among other things, the broker had issued a letter stating that, look, you know, part of the value add that we provide is that we are going to provide control uh, we have the very latest systems, and we're going to provide control, uh, no direct charge to our customers over these loads, and that its drivers would ha- provide you know, consistent and timely transit times, that they ran an average of 50 miles per hour. So statements were made that one could look at and say, well, are we talking about a motor carrier or are we talking about a freight broker here? And the court thought that there were enough issues at stake that a jury could ultimately decide that. And this is a a situation that that comes up quite frequently 
where brokers are accused, at least sometimes wrongfully, of holding themselves out in a fashion other than as a broker. And, and, and those three PLs need to be careful about it. Uh, even federal law in the federal regulations provides that brokers aren't supposed to directly or indirectly represent their operations to be that of a carrier. Uh, if they're doing advertising, they're supposed to, to demonstrate that they are, in fact, a broker. So that's one area that 3PLs need to uh, keep in mind and be sensitive to. I think a, a second area, and probably the area where I see the biggest exposure for 3PLs routinely, is a failure to ensure that the promises that you are making to your shippers are in harmony, let's say, with the promises that you are extracting from your carriers, that they, these obligations need to match up. Because as you pointed out at the beginning there, Jeff, you know, the 3PL is in the middle. You know, they, they need to make sure that they navigate that relationship. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves creating potential liability that could otherwise be avoided. And I'll, you know, you see this for limitations of liability, for instance. If I'm the 3PL, I'm telling my customer, don't worry. Um, I'm going to ensure that all the motor carriers I hire are going to have $250,000 worth of cargo insurance per load. And then I turn around and I hire a carrier that only has $100,000 uh, limitation of liability. Um, so you've got that matchup. It might be with insurance, too. Um, and maybe it's an insurance commitment upstream saying that they will be insured up to a certain amount. And then downstream, you don't have the similar uh, insurance obligation extracted. Um, consequential damages. You may make a commitment to your shipper that you're going to cover some form of lost profits, and then you turn around and hire a motor carrier that uh, that has a waiver of consequential damages in that broker carrier contract. Indemnity, same sort of uh, situation may arise. So it's important that these obligations match up ultimately. If you're playing that intermediary role, ensure that the, that the commitments you're making to your customers are going to be matched and in harmony with the commitments you're extracting from your downstream providers. Um, you know, there's a case, for instance, I can think of where indemnity was, uh, was really at play and a, a, a commercial shipper had hired a, uh, a carrier, what it thought was a carrier, to move certain goods. The provider was actually just a broker, even though it signed a shipper-carrier agreement uh, with a broad indemnity provision in it. And ultimately, that broker hired a motor carrier to move some polyethylene pipe uh, and was involved, and that carrier was involved in an accident, uh, and the truck driver is killed. The truck driver's wife ends up suing in Missouri against the shipper, uh, claiming that the shipper had negligently loaded the truck in this case. Shipper turns around and sues this broker uh, under the indemnity provision that I just referenced and said, look, you know, you signed this broad indemnity provision uh, and promised to indemnify us, and you didn't have any carve-outs broker even for, your, for our own negligence. So we think that even though we, the shipper, were negligent in loading, and the shipper acknowledged it, that they were, they were negligent in loading these goods at point of origin. Even though we were negligent, you broker have to indemnify us because you signed a contract containing that broad, sweeping indemnity obligation. And even though a motor carrier might be able to avoid the consequences of that provision because of the anti-indemnity statutes that exist around the country now, the broker 
would be unable to extract itself because those anti-indemnity statutes do not, at least generally speaking, apply to brokers. I think there's one exception, perhaps in Arkansas, where they've included brokers in the scope of, uh, of that contract. So that's another example of where if that, that broker made a commitment to uh, its shipper to indemnify it, but was unable to look downstream to the motor carrier uh, to seek recovery uh, at the end of the day. So that's another area of exposure. And then I think the third area that uh, 3PLs or other intermediaries should keep in mind uh, involves negligent selection or vicarious liability. This is an area that has gotten a lot of uh, attention in recent years. The plaintiff's bar has been very aggressive uh, in pursuing 3PLs under a variety of theories, both negligent selection, uh, in other words, failing to vet uh, the actual carriers adequately, uh, and, and there have been a variety of cases on that issue as to whether or not they have operating authority, do they have adequate insurance. Some courts go further and, and, and say there has to be an inquiry regarding safety ratings and whether or not a conditional is, is going to be uh, indicia of negligence or not. So there are a variety of theories on, on that front that certainly get uh, parties' attentions. And in the Spurl case um, from 2000, it was really affirmed back in 2011. I mean, it was another one of these $24 million judgments taken against a broker. Uh, and in this case, it wasn't negligent selection, but rather vicarious liability, this theory that uh, the, the broker had exercised too much control over the actual carrier and therefore should be treated as the carrier itself. So it's a, it's a reminder to brokers that they need to be sensitive to those issues and not be exercising uh, control over their, uh, their business partners. And partners is not even the right word to use. They're the independent contractors with whom they are dealing. Um, it's just a, it's an important uh, an important lesson because there are a number of these multi million dollar judgments that have been taken against brokers uh, as a result of this body of law that the plaintiffs bar is aggressively developing. Now, hopefully that gives you some sense as to some of the uh, the areas where I've seen three PLs create exposure for themselves. Right now, with all the vetting that needs to go into clauses and conditions and all that, it sounds like a really time intensive process. How do companies reconcile that in an era that is, we need it yesterday, instant gratification. Sure, sure. And it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think that every provider needs to, uh, both this would apply both to commercial shippers as well as 3PL, need to have in place some efficient onboarding mechanism and, you know, trying to automate as much of it as possible, of course, but then also signing up for some commercial services that will help with the ongoing monitoring, because that's really uh, essential as well. It's not just the initial onboard, but that constant monitoring after the fact. So there are a variety of commercial services that will provide real-time updates to shippers or to 3PLs regarding, for instance, whether or not a motor carrier's uh, operating authority is still active. So if a motor carrier does lose its license for some reason, that shipper or a broker will be notified immediately uh, and will know not to tender loads going forward. So that helps with the velocity uh, of, of the shipping needs, uh, certainly. Uh, but it, it's important, though, that 
that the uh, those in the transportation departments at these companies do sit down early on and develop an efficient onboarding process to make it as uniform as possible uh, and not to make it overly cumbersome, as you point out. There are, there are extremes. I've seen carrier selection protocols that go for 30 pages. Uh, that is probably not going to be an efficient way to run your business. Uh, and, and in addition, you know, there's, a, there's a, a strong school of thought that says that less is more to a certain extent, that the person selecting a carrier should look at the really vital information. Does it have an adequate, does it have current operating authority? Has it posted its appropriate insurance? Did you get a certificate of insurance? And at least ensure that it doesn't have an unsatisfactory safety rating if we're talking about motor carriers. Once you've done that, um, how much further you go beyond is subject to debate even within the legal community because by doing more, you may be assuming further duties that would not otherwise be imposed on you by law. So uh, just a, it's a good point to keep in mind. Now, what about with carriers? Do they need to be as vigilant as shippers and 3PLs? Sure. Yeah, there are, there are many lessons that carriers need to keep in mind uh, for, for these reasons as well. Uh, you know, there are a couple of different areas I think that, that carriers need to be thinking about. One is understanding limits of liability a little bit more clearly and certainly keeping in mind the distinction between limits of liability and insurance provisions. Um, I see this uh, come up quite frequently from time to time. So you know, there's an example of a case that's been ongoing for a long time right now, uh, Excel versus uh, Southern Refrigerated Transport. Uh, and this illustrates a couple of points I think are worth consideration. Um, in, in that particular case, the shipper here, uh, Sandoz, retained Excel to broker the transportation of a load of, of pharmaceuticals, high-value pharmaceuticals from Pennsylvania to, to Tennessee, I believe. And Excel retains the motor carrier, Southern Refrigerated Transport, uh, to perform the actual transportation. There was a, a master transportation agreement in place between Excel and Southern Refrigerated Transport, uh, but there was also a bill of lading that was issued by Southern Refrigerated Transport when it picked up the load. And on that bill of lading was a notation, RVNX 240, which was, there was testimony that this meant essentially retail value not to exceed $2.40 a pound, which based on the weight of this load would mean that the load was worth a little over 56 grand. But ultimately, the load was stolen while in the possession of the motor carrier. Uh, the shipper says, well, this load is worth almost $9 million. Uh, so we expect $9 million ultimately in recovery. Uh, there were a whole variety of issues that were uh, litigated in the course of this, this particular case. But there are a couple, uh, two in particular, I think, that I want to point out here. One was an argument that the insurance provision in the master services agreement operated as a limitation of liability, uh, that because there was a requirement for cargo insurance in an amount of up to $100,000 per, per load, that that was the same as limiting the liability of the motor carrier to $100,000. And that's what the motor carrier wanted to say. Hey, you, you required us to have $100,000 in cargo insurance, so clearly you understood that our, limit, our liability was going to be limited to $100,000. And the court 
threw that out and said, no, an insurance provision is different than a limitation of liability. Um, they are two different issues here, and, and a shipper could decide to have an uninsured um, uh, exposure for its motor carrier in these circumstances. So that's one thing where I, I frequently see carriers get those two concepts confused and think that, hey, if I've got a cargo insurance provision in my shipper carrier agreement or in my broker carrier agreement, then I'm protected, that I don't have any exposure beyond what is provided for in that insurance provision. And that's that's just wrong. And and the carrier needs to be sensitive to that and aware of those of those issues. The second is even if you've got a limitation of liability, um, there needs to be some understanding that these limitations of liability are enforceable to different extents uh, you know, based on the jurisdiction, among other things. But for instance, in this particular case, the same case that, that we've been talking about, the XL case, uh, the, there was a limitation of liability, arguably, this RVNX 240, uh, and the court ultimately applied what's called the four-part test or the four-point test uh, to determine whether or not a limitation of liability is enforceable. And the, the historic tests uh, provided that the carrier had to maintain an approved tariff with the ICC. Well, that element of the test is, is largely abandoned since the ICC hasn't existed since the mid-90s. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the test says, did the carrier obtain the shipper's written declaration of choice of liability? And did the carrier, the third element is, did the carrier give the shipper a reasonable opportunity to choose between two or more levels of liability protection? The final, the fourth element is, is whether or not a, a receipt or bill of lading was issued. But the real key here is this third element. You know, was there a reasonable opportunity to choose between two or more levels of liability protection? And the court here said that no, the, the motor carrier failed to provide that, uh, reasonable choice because the rate charged on the face of the bill of lading expressly was not dependent on value. It was a negotiated contract rate. So this whole released rate mechanism on the bill of lading couldn't apply. Um, and the tariff, which the court said, you know, theoretically could apply, it just didn't limit liability because it didn't contain rates or applicable limits of liability that offer the shipper a reasonable choice. So this motor carrier, bottom line here, Jeff, this motor carrier that took on the transportation of a, of a load worth $9 million um, ultimately was going to be faced with full value exposure because it did not properly limit its liability. And undoubtedly, it didn't charge for services based on the fact that it was exposed to a $9 million uh, possible claim, but that's the world that it ended up living in. So... It's just a good wake-up call for motor carriers out there to, to keep in mind they need to be sensitive to their uh, limits of liability and understand the language in their in their contracts. And I think another another kind of lesson for motor carriers or, or carriers in general, I'll say, uh, is, is this issue relating to what legal rules govern these limits of liability. You know, I talked at the beginning of our discussion here. Uh, about the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act, for instance, mm -hmm. and the fact that there, a party can limit, an ocean carrier in that case, can limit its liability to $500 per package, and if the inland 
carriers can take advantage of that limitation if there's a, a proper uh, Himalaya clause that extends that protection. But you know, some parties don't uh, don't understand that. So, for instance, there is a a case involving Schulman Transportation where it tried to limit its liability even below the $500 per package limitation of liability and thought that it could uh, it could do so. Unfortunately, that's below what the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act permits, uh, and ultimately that limitation of liability was unenforceable because it exceeded the authority granted by the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act. So a carrier in that instance was was trying to do the right thing, was trying to limit its liability and thought it had, had done so, but it went too far. It, it violated federal law in doing so. So another lesson for that, uh, that particular party to keep in mind. And then I guess a, another area where I see carriers sometimes creating exposure for themselves is, you know, their failure to have licenses or operating authority to engage in other services. Uh, motor carriers might uh, get involved in brokerage, for instance, and they don't separate that service offering in a separate legal entity. Uh, they're offering it as a carrier uh, and engaging in what I might call convenience interlining, uh, which is kind of a phrase you'll hear in the industry where it's a paper transaction. You know, they tell their customer, hey, you know, we're, we're running out of equipment or we don't have sufficient equipment. So we're going to hire somebody else to move this particular load for you, uh, and um, and don't worry, you know, it'll be taken care of. Well, that carrier now under federal law is engaging in brokerage, and if it doesn't have a license to do that, it can expose itself to a variety of consequences. One being a civil penalty, which FMCSA could levy uh, for up to ten thousand dollars per violation. Uh, and moreover, a private party can now sue under federal law. There is a federal private cause of action uh, to sue an unlicensed broker, uh, and that liability uh, extends not only to the company, but more importantly to the principals, the officers, the directors of that business. So the CEO of a motor carrier that is engaging in unlicensed brokerage uh, could face uh, personal liability, have his own or her own assets exposed to significant liability uh, as a result uh, of that activity. So it's important that if you're a provider, you're thinking about these issues. What services are we providing? And and kind of related to this is, is scope creep. Um, you know, most carriers, and this applies to, to brokers as well, you know, they want to be a, a solution provider to their customers naturally. And so there's a tendency to always say, yes, we can do that whenever they are presented with an opportunity from their customer. And I would urge carriers and 3PLs to take, uh, take a moment, step back, reflect a little bit, uh, and determine what you need to do in order to adequately provide that service. Is there some other license that you need? Do you have appropriate operating authority? Are you properly insured to engage in this particular activity, or are you going to face an unexposed and uninsured exposure by virtue of this new service offering? Do you even have the, the, the technical competence to perform some of the tasks that you're being asked to perform? So, you know, that's another area where I just see a great deal of exposure. Uh, and it's all well-intended. You know, the, the carrier wants to do the right thing and help out its, its customer, but I I inevitably 
and inadvertently it creates uh, some dangers for itself. Uh, so that's just another another point to keep in mind. Are there going to be any developments on the uh, legislative and regulatory sides of things that will affect this entire process? You know, right now we've got an entirely new legislative and regulatory landscape, uh, really with the new administration. I mean, January 20th, if we step back in time to earlier this year, uh, the Trump administration issued on day one uh, this this memorandum for the heads of executive departments and agencies uh, imposing a regulatory freeze uh, pending certain reviews. So there was, uh, you know, essentially saying, look, no new regs are going to be sent to the Office of the Federal Register until the president's new appointee for a given agency reviews and approves the regulation. Uh, also, any uh, regulations that were sent to the Office of the Federal Register but hadn't yet been published should be withdrawn for the time being, and effective dates were postponed for those regulations that had been published but were not yet in effect. So, you know, to me, even just that initial step was the the death knell for certain uh, regulatory activity that the industry on the provider side had been keeping an eye on. For instance, the speed limiter legislation or regulation, that's, that's, that's dead in the water essentially. Mm-hmm. New minimum requirement, or minimum insurance requirements that were being explored, that's over with. Um, so those things I think are, are I think we're going to have a different focus uh, on the regulatory front now. I think it will be more attuned to finding efficiencies, better ways to do business, to actually perform the tasks that the agencies are currently uh, assigned to perform. I think that's where most of the regulatory activity is going to be seen. There are certain regulations that are already so far along that they're not going to uh, go away, so to speak. And the electronic logging devices, uh, that's imminent now. December 18th is right around the corner next month. Uh, That's not going to change, even though there is this kind of um, adjustment period that CVSA is going to recognize and kind of, uh, you know, extend through April 1st. Um, the drug and alcohol clearinghouse is going forward, uh, and, and most of those are, are, are good and laudable activities. But I, I think that to an extent the industry is, is able to take a deep breath now and say, okay, they're not worried about a new regulatory onslaught hitting them uh, imminently um, you know, for the time being at least. Uh, these regulations are never fully dead, though, and, the, and, and, and you, one never knows what might resurrect itself uh, down the road. But for the moment, I think that there's kind of a collective sigh of relief uh, throughout the industry that uh, there's an opportunity to focus on the business at hand and not get bogged down in new uh, regulatory obligations. Wow, that's a lot of fascinating and sobering information. Where can our listeners go to find out more information about uh, Benish Law Firm and uh, about you? Sure. No, I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, on the Internet, you can certainly go to our firm's website, and that is www.beneshlaw.com. And we have a, a variety of publications we issue uh, relating to transportation and logistics. These are freebies. You can sign up to, uh, to get on our mailing list. Uh, making sure that you get some of the latest case updates, uh, anything new on the regulatory horizon, and hopefully some practical takeaway advice so that you can implement in your respective businesses. Great, Mark Bluebaugh. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with our listeners of the Inbound Logistics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's been my pleasure. Take care. 
Inbound Logistics Magazine is the information leader in supply chain and logistics management. Start your free print and digital subscription today by visiting bit.ly slash getil. That's bit.ly slash get underscore il and stay ahead of the 3PL game. Inbound Logistics Podcast is a production of Inbound Logistics Magazine. For the most in-depth information around logistics, transportation, and supply chain practices, get your free print and digital subscription at inboundlogistics.com slash subscribe. Connect with us via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for the most current developments in the industry. If you'd like to leave us some feedback or have a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode, call our dialogue line at 888-878-3247 or leave us an email at podcast at inboundlogistics.com. I'm your host, Jeff Vita. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on the Inbound Logistics Podcast.